This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, May 9th, 2023, on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, the other side of entrepreneurship than starting your own business, buying an existing business. Randy Wilburn's latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas includes a conversation with Justin Macedo, a recent University of Arkansas graduate who now owns a decades-long established business in Northwest Arkansas. That's in our second half hour. First, data from the 2020 U.S. Census shows Arkansas has a population of more than 256,000 Hispanic or Latino people. And that number is expected to continue to increase exponentially. And a group of Spanish instructors from the University of Arkansas is working to preserve Spanish language among younger Latinos while also fostering bilingual education across the board. The group, including professors Luis Fernando Restrepo, Raquel Castro-Gonzalez, Brenda Magnetti, Elkin Perez, and graduate student Grace Gonzalez-Sanchez, recently spoke with Daniel Carruth about the research. Dr. Restrepo started the conversation by explaining the state of language education in Arkansas's public schools today. And we identify first that, for example, we are an English-only state that mm-hmm. did not allow until recently having dual language immersion programs, which are really effective. Also, uh, now the Department of Education is integrated higher education and mm-hmm. public education, but the, the data is separate. Mm-hmm. So we needed to coordinate to have a whole plan. And we needed more buy-in from the community and the leaders. And we're on this this mission to bring to Arkansas an education where our students are multilingual and can communicate across the world. And so can any of you just talk about sort of the next steps that that you're taking with this program to bridge those gaps, to to make Spanish more accessible and and more integrated in, in education in Arkansas? So at the university, what we do is I have a class where I teach my students here at the university about biliteracy, bilingualism, by, um, linguistic rights, and, and the policy. And then they're able to see this firsthand by going to the school. So we're trying to bridge the university with the community. Yeah. And Grace, if you talk about just sin limites and, and what that is and, and why it's important. Well, I have seen the growth for the undergrad students and the elementary students. We work under one content base, I would say probably one topic, like a STEAM topic, and they, then we keep working on that. Why? Because they can develop some vocabulary, academic vocabulary for them that they could be used later for school. So that's the part that our uh, undergrads help us because they know and they have been in the field. So what they do is they help us to get together the lesson and help them with the with this experience. And so the, just to uh, clarify a little bit, the Sin Limites program, what it is, a uh, collaboration between uh, Springdale Public Schools. Well, right now we have two schools that we're working mm-hmm. with and university students. And they're working on different topics and having Spanish in the same space where they're speaking English all day. And it's Latino children. And so it's, the focus is trying to maintain their language and to see the value in that heritage because we have university kids um, and university students that go to the, to the school and they are Hispanic heritage speakers. Mm-hmm. Elementary children are seeing the university students and, and thinking, well, I can relate. I mean, I'm represented yeah. at the university. I can go to the university too. And then we also have non-Hispanic students that go to the elementary school and they volunteer and they're bilingual elementary children. They see these university students that look nothing like them, mm-hmm. 
but they're bilingual. And so it brings up the question is like, why is it that these people, these young adults learn my language? It's valuable, it's relevant. Uh, from the policy perspective, because the education right now in Arkansas, you only start world languages at the eighth grade. Wow. We're losing a key window for many of these students. Uh, so they may be able to speak at home with their parents in Spanish, but if they don't get much support, they're gonna lose that. Uh, in the roadmap, we're gonna highlight the need to start early, mm -hmm. with the need to do a language immersion, that that Spanish and those Spanish-speaking communities could be an asset also <coughs> for the English speakers. Uh, thanks to um, Representative Megan Godfrey, uh, we were able to get uh, Act 663 to have waivers to be able to implement bilingual and do a language immersion programs. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, uh, the Department of Education also developed the frameworks to start language programs at the elementary level. So we have now the legal possibilities to do it, mm -hmm. you know, the frameworks, but now we need the will of the educators. Yeah. So this is why we're speaking up. <laughs> yeah, and I'm wondering just from your perspectives as educators and then also as you know, people who are uh, Spanish first, I'm, I'm assuming that was your first language, um, coming to Arkansas, like how Spanish is treated in, in this state and in the U.S. as being seen maybe as not as important and, and coming here from a culture or a place where bilingualism was seen as important and as something that is valuable, coming here and trying to break down the, those barriers. I mean, how has that been? While well, doing the research, we found that between 2010 and 2021, the Hispanic population was the, um, the population that grew the most in the state and uh, increased 1.9%, and the, it puts the Hispanic population to at 8.9%, which is like a huge increase. So when you see those percentages going up, it's when you have the question, what are we gonna do with all this population we have here, the potential they have in uh, not only in school, but also in the industry. One of the things that we are trying to do with this uh, initiative is to break that idea of bilingualism as a weird or rare thing. The name Sin Limites, it comes from the, the fact that when a Latino or like a, a person that comes from a house where they another language is spoken. When they enroll in school, they <laughs> fill out this form and they, they write down that there is another language spoken at home. So this kid is tagged limited English proficient. But it's not a limitation, it's not a deficit, it's actually a potential. Last year, we brought for our symposium mm -hmm. a representative from the National Security Educational Program, which is part of the Department of Defense that our program has helped several states write the roadmap. We didn't know when we were doing this when someone said, oh, you want to do a roadmap? Yeah. So we looked <laughs> at that Indiana, Wisconsin, Rhode Island. They were working, and they brought together all the stakeholders, the, the community service providers, uh, the ones that are in corporate, international commerce, and everything is, what kind of education do we need one, to participate in a global economy mm -hmm. because our states are involved. For example, Mexico is one of our, Latin America is one of our largest trading partners of Arkansas. 
but you can do the same thing for Germany or for other ones. So that connecting Arkansas with the world, our, our proposal was called uh, five, uh, connecting Arkansas participation in a 500 million person community. Uh, that, that is what is Spanish. Spanish will connect with 500 million people. We are missing this window of opportunity of having here a multilingual community that we can build those um, those skills. Yeah, and so what what does that landscape look like for for Spanish education and maybe other lang world languages as well? What does it look like right now? Where are we lacking? What specific things could could maybe take it to the next step? There are no dual immersion programs in Arkansas. Missouri has um, dual immersion programs, Oklahoma has dual immersion programs, but we don't. And what I think one of the reasons this is troubling is when you look at the numbers in Springdale, especially in Rogers area, the population of students is like over 40% of the public schools right now, right now. We should have started preparing for this like 10, 20 years ago, but this uh, exponential growth in, in, in demographics kind of caught up with us, and right now we are at the point where half of the student population in big counties, I think Springdale is one of the bigger uh, school districts, there is no Spanish education until you get to eighth grade. Now, many of the colleges have dropped the requirement of That's a world true. language, and that that created, uh, and we found out that, you know, like 10,000 less uh, students in programs in Spanish and in many other languages. Recently, we saw just last week, uh, UALR closed mm -hmm. the French uh, program, despite that the faculty had voted to keep that program to see the value. But those things are not isolated. What is happening uh, at the high school level in the whole pipeline and also at the college level. And having a conversation uh, with the representative from the Department of Defense, he said, well, you gotta find out what your industry and your social service providers need in terms of competence, and then you build up a plan that you raised enough bilingual speakers, you know, whatever their background is, in the different languages that you need to be working out. Right now, there's no plan. Yeah. I do feel like often when we talk about, especially Spanish-speaking communities, we talk about English language programs and, and teaching people English as a second language, and that is always seen as, as the answer. What are the big barriers to changing non second language speakers, non-Spanish speakers' minds about maybe I should learn Spanish, maybe I should try and, and bridge that gap myself. How do you change people's minds here in Arkansas about that and get them to take the next step? I would go back to relating to their interest, I would mm -hmm. say. The employment opportunities and the benefit that it would bring to their life, uh, having another language, I think that would be a, a point. I would say that not only in Spanish, but for example, I know in um, in German, our faculty, Kathleen Condre, she has uh, developed a program, it's a collaboration with uh, engineering with Germany. It's a dual degree engineering and languages. So we talked also with Raquel with the language for the professions. If you are in the social services, you, you speak another language. But to look at the macro, what we have to do is that those bilingual skills count at the, at the time when you're hired. Yeah. That's the idea also of the seal of biliteracy, that knowing and having two languages, there's process of certification that allows you, you are bilingual, you, this is really valuable to an employee, employer, and they will be able to uh, compensate 
that more if you have that. Just something simple, but also the fact of sometimes understanding a second language that is connected to other languages can then, you know, mm -hmm. help you to go for more. Like, you know, the, the Italian program uh, for Romance language speakers, it has been creating, yeah, this idea of is, there is nothing wrong with learning more or connect, you know, what you already speak. Also, it's important to break the idea of either or. Mm -hmm. For actually, we're not saying not to learn English, we're saying learn English, but don't stay there. You can learn another language or you can keep your, your heritage language. So I think the idea that the brain can only take one language is not completely true because we're all here. Uh, <laughs> There's proof of that. <laughs> Might not be perfect English, but we're speaking it. So. And do you have any advice for people who, who maybe, I know for me it's always a, a barrier to, to just put my ego aside and, and try to speak in that other language and not worry about the mistakes that I'm going to make. Like, do you have any advice for people who, who want to speak that second language? Probably when I came here six years ago, I was afraid to make a phone call or just even talk to someone because I was scared that they couldn't understand me, even though that I was start learning English in my country. And I wasn't sure that my knowledge was good enough to express myself. You are going to make mistakes. You're going to get better. I mean, it's just give it a try. If you don't risk, <laughs> you're not yeah. going to gain anything. From my point of view as a Latina, when I hear a non-Spanish speaker try, that feels great. It's like, oh, man, you're doing the effort. You know, good job. We try to help. An advice, I would say, for anybody that wants to just learn a, a, a new language for the first time is, you know, there are so many free resources today. And again, you don't have to be in one of the best classes in the world, like uh, Elkin's classes, to learn a language. Yeah. But no, the internet has so many now great videos and help, you know, so many free programs. Uh, and, you know, if you happen to know someone that probably knows the language, approach and say, hey, would you give me one, two, three minutes once a month? And I just show you what I've been learning or you can so, just drive to Springdale and go to the taquerias right exactly. <laughs> and then like mm -hmm. she was saying and then you you know you say hey I'm learning I want to just try for someone that has the time they can even volunteer to work in places where you know they will be communicating to the person in, in the language it's true and and I would like to tell the story of one of my students he was super excited about Spanish and he was Mr. Perez I am really excited about the language. He couldn't go to a study abroad program for some reasons, and he came. I got a job at a grocery store in Springdale, yeah. in a Hispanic grocery store. And then when I saw him in August, and he said, how did it go? Well, at the beginning, everybody was freaked out with me because I was the only, you know, non-Hispanic in the whole <laughs> store. And then when I talked to him in August again, he's his accent and he had some phrases that he caught in the grocery and it was like you learn so for some people when when they're they th were thinking of learning another language sometimes they put the bar too high mm. it's like you know to be a pianist I have to be able to play you know Mozart's sonatas in the piano really great you know there's no in the middle all or nothing so like supposedly a bilingual person will be able to speak you know without an accent mm -hmm. and learn the language since they were little kids you know that that's Although the world is, half of the world might be bilingual, 
they're in different ranges. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interference of the languages mm -hmm. uh, cross, uh, crossing the languages. We learned that, you know, uh, that is actually something that is, is the mind is able to really incorporate in a very synthetic way, different languages. So one of the values of multilingualism is that your brain works, you know, really great. It's uh, it helps you to multitask. It, it also they say that it prevents from getting dementia earlier. So there's so many, you know, kind of linguistic uh, uh, benefits, health benefits, communication benefits to being multilingual. That that would be sort of an incentive of this is good for me. That was the research group behind the University of Arkansas's Spanish Roadmap Project, speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth last week. Daniel Carruth's reports are put together inside the Karen Taha News Studio. Walton Arts Center presents Hadestown, winner of eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Hadestown intertwines two mythical tales, that of young dreamers Orpheus and Eurydice, and that of King Hades and his wife Persephone into a musical journey. It's a trip to the underworld and back May 23rd through the 28th. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. Ahead on our show are all school grades assigned Equitably. We were interested in looking into the black box further of how teachers assign those grades because something kind of popped up when we looked into our research. Researching grades and why grading equity matters. That's ahead on today's Ozarks at Large. On the next episode of The R Word, we hear from author Greg Thompson from the discussion of his book Reparations that took place at the Fayetteville Public Library in April in which he outlines the threefold theft of truth, power, and wealth that's been taken from black Americans since this country's founding, and how reparations give us a path to reconciliation through restoring what has been stolen. And so I just, I just want to say as, as clearly as I can, personal repentance, racial reconciliation, even discrete institutional form are all important. But until America owns up to the truth, and says, we want to be a community of reparations. We will never heal. But if we do that, I believe that we can. Listen to The R Word for free at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. Voters in some parts of Arkansas are voting today. Included school board elections in Siloam Springs, Pea Ridge, and Fayetteville, and a series of bond issues in Springdale. Polls in the state remain open until 7.30 p.m. Nearly 73,000 Arkansans are no longer on the Medicaid rolls in Arkansas after they were disenrolled last month. April was the first month Arkansans who would receive extended Medicaid coverage because of the pandemic could be taken off the rolls. The Arkansas Department of Human Services reports it disenrolled more than 44,000 Medicaid beneficiaries whose coverage had been extended because of the public health emergency. More than another 28,000 cases were closed as part of DHS's normal operations, according to a press release. Among the cases due in April, coverage was renewed for more than 61,000 individuals. Officials with the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences celebrating the opening of a new spine and orthopedic hospital, the 158,000-square-foot facility, the culmination of roughly two years of construction. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders joined other state officials at the ceremony, crediting UAMS with the speed of the project. It's only two years ago that you broke ground on this hospital, and where most other projects would get caught up in the bureaucracy and the red tape, we're going to be seeing the very first patients here in a month. That's an amazing testament 
to the skill, to the vision, and the drive of everyone here today. The new hospital features 24 private patient rooms as well as 12 operating rooms and space for exams and education. The hospital will see its first surgical patients next month. After winning six straight conference games, the Razorback baseball team moving back up in the national polls. Arkansas is ranked third in this week's collegiate baseball newspaper, fourth in the latest Baseball America poll. Arkansas will host number seven South Carolina for three games in Fayetteville this weekend. And the SEC Women's Softball Tournament begins tonight in Fayetteville with a first-round game between Mississippi State and Missouri. Arkansas's first game not scheduled till Thursday night at Bogle Park. Classes are winding down this time of year, and final grades will soon be posted for students of all ages. For high schoolers, the grades recorded at the end of the semester influence grade point average, a major component when it comes to getting into college or receiving financial scholarships to help pay for secondary education. Research originating at the University of Arkansas shows 22% of Arkansas freshman students fail a class, and economically challenged students are 10 percentage points more likely to fail a class. Sarah Morris, a second-year Ph.D. student at the U of A Department of Education Reform and graduate assistant for the Office of Education Policy, has been working with Dr. Sarah McKenzie, the executive director of the Office for Education Policy, to learn more about grading in Arkansas schools. Both came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio recently, and during their visit, Sarah Morris, who's taught in public schools, said teachers have responsibilities to teach the same standards... We had a lot of freedom for how we presented those standards, and we also had a lot of freedom for how we assigned grades to students after they demonstrated what they could learn on those standards. Um, we were interested in looking into the black box further of how teachers assign those grades because something kind of popped up when we looked into our research. We found that in Arkansas for ninth graders, the students who face economic disadvantages are twice as likely to fail a course their freshman year compared to students who don't face those same economic disadvantages. When I say that often, people in their heads might be like, oh, well, of course, that's because they're economically disadvantaged. But in our analysis, we actually control for the students who are scoring the same the prior year before. So at the, at the end of the year, we take these tests that show this is what I can do, this is my academic ability, and we're measuring these kids that can have the same academic ability. Yet, if one of them faces that economic disadvantage, they're twice as likely to fail the course, even if they have the same ability. So at the end of the year, you have student A and student B, mm -hmm. and they are basically equal on the knowledge they have, the ability they have for yes. whatever, let's say it's algebra or calculus. Yes. But the economically the child from economically disadvantaged background is more likely to have had an F in that class. Yes. That's interesting. Yes. But do we know why? So we are digging into the why, and it's kind of tricky because um, with these conversations with teachers, there's a wide range on what is actually being graded. Um, several teachers report, I'm only going to grade a student on what they can display on mastery of a standard. Show your work. Right, okay. which, which, is, which is great for students. 
On the other hand, we have teachers reporting in the state that it's very important to include a behavior component in the grade. So what I mean by that is, did I try really hard in this class? Did I always do my best? Did I really try and please my teacher? Did I always do my homework, even if it wasn't correct? Was I always just trying? Some teachers admit and report that that's very important to them and that's what they account for in their grade. But that's subjective. Right, and you can't really measure subjectivity and that's something that Dr. McKenzie and I have been working with um, this entire two years of digging into this is should subjectivity go into a grade or should it only be based on what a student can do academically because we know that grades are important because in Arkansas, if you fail a course your freshman year, you are three times less likely to enroll in college compared to the students who don't fail a course their freshman year. And the study you did was with freshmen, correct? Yes. And that's important because that's when your grade point really starts to matter towards yes. college admissions. Yes, yes. And um, students, if they fail a course, they have to start working really hard on getting back on track and trying to make sure they have all of their credits in order. Equity is uh, is a big part of this mm-hmm. because there are only so many, you know, scholarships or spots to go around if you're thinking about college and grade point matters. So if you're at a place where it's less likely that you'll pass or more likely that you won't, I guess is a better way to say it, that challenge could stack up. It could, it could become uh, something that becomes greater as you go through high school. Right, and that's um, something that Dr. McKenzie spoke with me about yesterday is as people who have experienced high school, maybe we can think back and be like, oh, I don't want to get that teacher. They are a really hard grader. They're a tough grader. In reality, for students who face economic disadvantages, every teacher is going to be a tough grader for them. Like that's their reality because they're already facing really tough things outside of schools that other students don't have to face. And for them to show up to school and be as hardworking as they possibly can, that that's the best that they can do. So this equity term comes into play when we're trying to just measure what all students can perform on a standard without taking into account, did they complete their homework on time or did they show a lot of effort in class today? Did they raise their hand five times in mm. class today? Those sorts of things. Um, and equity is, grading equity is really hot at the moment right now. There was a Wall Street Journal posting that discussed um, really poor implementation of grading equity practices in a district in um, Las Vegas. Basically, um, people at the top told all of the teachers what they had to do and what they had to implement without absolutely any training at all. Um, It made all of the teachers frustrated. Um, They're not coming at it from a good standpoint with the students. The students are just kicked back in their seats and they're like, well, if my homework completion doesn't count and if I can do a thousand things and turn it in late, what's the point of doing anything? So that's, we are afraid when when we're communicating things that could be better practices that all of this should be done at once, but we really want to make sure that we're communicating professional development and 
enriching conversations about chances to be reflective over your grading practices happens gradually because some of our prior research that we found and our own research is everyone admits that if it's going to be done well, it has to be done slowly because it takes a lot of reflectiveness on the teacher's part because, hey, I was a teacher for five years and I didn't start thinking about my grading practices and what is best and fair for all students until my fifth year. And I didn't even have a professional development on it. It was with an enriching conversation with a different mentor. Well, I imagine as an early, as a, as a new teacher, you, I don't know if you're overwhelmed, but you've got a lot to deal with. So, you know, being reflective about grading may not rise to the top in those first few years. Right. And that's tricky because... <laughs> I'm a little biased, but out of all of the professions, I think teachers really have a lot on their plates, mm-hmm. and they already have a lot coming at them. They have to keep parents happy. They have to keep administration happy. They have to keep their children engaged. Sorry, their students engaged, mm-hmm. and that's that's a lot to juggle. And I found a study a few days ago that said that pre-service teachers they're not getting the exact professional development that they need for correct or for fair grading practices because they just come into the classroom like you said and they're overwhelmed and they're just trying to manage it the best they can and even if one of their favorite students doesn't know the content as well they're eventually going to give them a grade that they think looks a little bit better. You find that one in five Arkansas freshmen Fail a course. One in five Arkansas freshmen fail a course. And um, unfortunately, that was before COVID. We Mm -hmm. looked at it the year after COVID, and it's around 30% now. My colleagues in journalism will not be surprised to hear that Algebra 1 is the most common. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Algebra 1 was the most failed course the year before COVID. Um, After COVID, it was also still the most failed course, but Spanish 1 was actually the... One following up close behind you, too. <laughs> that was mine. Yeah. One of the interesting things about Algebra 1 was we didn't see these differences by uh, students who face economic disadvantages in that course. So really? in that course, students who come from less wealthy backgrounds are just as likely to fail as students who come from more wealthy backgrounds based mm-hmm. on once we control for their prior math achievement. Okay, I'm going to do something that I'm sure researchers hate. <laughs> I'm going to make this off-the-cuff supposition about that. Algebra 1 seems to be one where you are most likely to be graded for what's on the paper. It seems like that's what's happening because there's less room for variation and disproportionality in the students who are failing that. We have this. How do we find out more about the why and how do you, (laughs) I know this is years in the making, and then how do you, you know, how do you translate that to teachers who are concerned and want to be more reflective and want to be more equitable in grading? How does it all work? Slowly. Right. So I've got two more years left in the program, and I'm going to try really hard to work these next two years to work with Arkansas teachers. Um, We've spent the last two years finding out that there is a problem with these ninth grade grades for students who face these economic disadvantages. But now we need to think about, okay, well, if there's a problem, then how do we fix it and how do we move from here? 
this grading equity work has not been tested in what's best for students or teachers or parents at all in Arkansas yet. Nobody has measured it beyond just saying, oh, my, my kids like it or, oh, my kids dislike it. We need to get a little bit stronger and rigorous behind that in testing those theories. So Dr. McKenzie and I are trying to conduct a study where we give some teachers um, exposure to these different types of grading practices that don't rely on traditional beliefs on how kids should be graded, and then compare them to teachers who don't receive that exposure to the fairer grading practices. And then we're going to measure things like student motivation, self-efficacy, their stress levels, their self-esteem, their relationships with their teachers, and also measure the teacher side of it, their relationships with their students, their motivation for their job. Because we can say and we can have beliefs towards the theory of this is what's best practice for our Arkansas students, but we really need to partner with districts and teachers that are interested in being like, all right, all right well, let's test the theory. Let's see what actually happens when we do this. A, B, C, D, F, zero to 100, that's still the way to do it? or Well, um, it gets a little complicated after that. Um, there are some districts and teachers that a good place for them to start is just thinking about the zero to 100 scale now being a 50 to 100 scale. Um, something that I always like to give an example of is Johnny goes home one night and he really knows the math standards, but unfortunately both of his parents had to work, have to work that night and his sibling is sick. All he has time for is to take care of his sibling. The next day he comes in, his homework is unfinished, even if he does know the standards, but he receives a zero because he hasn't done his homework. Say the next night his parents are now off work, they can take care of his sibling, he demonstrates that he knows how to do the work, he makes a 100 the following day. Mr. Kellams, if you average right. a zero and a 100, that's a 50. Well, unfortunately, a zero is an F, a 100 is an A, and if you average an F and an A together, that's a C. A C is not a 50. Right. So that's a really good starting point for a lot of these teachers to be like, oh, well, maybe I could just change my scale and that's a really good place to start a lot of people that are anti-equity grading are like no you're just giving 50 points to the kid when they don't turn anything in you're just no technically we're recognizing that the old grading system is broken that is not mathematically sound zero to 100 does not mathematically work out with our a to f um so just recognizing that that should be the lowest dipping point because students like Johnny, just because they had to take care of their sister, they didn't have a choice, doesn't mean that they deserve a 50 for an average of those math abilities when he very well could have been able to demonstrate that he knew how to do it. You're passionate. Hmm. Sir McKenzie, you're passionate about this. <laughs> do you find passion among other people outside of, I mean, I would imagine teachers are passionate. Or, and I imagine some students and parents can get pretty passionate about grading. 
So the thing that I'm finding is there are a lot of educators that love reading the same type of research that I like to read as well, um, but they are reminding me to be very practical mm. about what is actually happening in the, com in the classroom. So in these certain steps for this is equitable grading, this is equitable grading, this is equitable grading, these teachers and educators that are passionate about thinking about how to grade kids fairer are like, well, this is what practically happens in my classroom. So we are finding those teachers, but it's hard to be in the same subjective mindset of it from we are because we're not the ones in the classroom. We're not the ones doing the work every day. We're not the experts teaching the students every day. So some teachers in the state, yes, are very passionate about making sure that students are graded fairer. I've spoken with a lot of principals that are like, this is how we should be doing it, but I'm proceeding this conversation with caution because I can't steamroll you, teacher. If I do that, it's not going to turn out right, well. Right. And, yep. Finally, can, can there, is there concern about equity among, not just in a classroom and not just in a school, but across the state? I mean, you could have, I don't know, a student who's getting one sort of grading in El Dorado and something as opposed to something someone who's in Salem and Fulton County? Unfortunately, um, we looked a little further into that, and yeah. it, was, it was not great. Um, there are some students who, in other districts throughout the state, are actually um, not more likely to fail compared to um, students of the flip. So if a student faced an economic disadvantage, compared to a student who didn't face an economic disadvantage, we don't see that measurement. And we've communicated those to those districts, you've done a great job, good job. Unfortunately, um, if these students were to relocate to a, to a different school, um, I'm getting a little angsty because um, <laughs> this is hard to communicate, but the, that student would then be now 27 percentage points more likely to fail a course just because they face an economic disadvantage and just because they moved into that new mm. school. Um, I think if I translate that, that's now three times more likely. So on average, the state is twice as likely. At their old school, they were like zero times. But now that they moved to this New school. With all the, the potential disruption in life that a new school means anyway. Right. The problems that these economically disadvantaged students are facing right now. Like, I know that we're making a big ask for teachers and districts to think about, oh, we have to partner. Oh, we have to do a study. Oh, that's that's a big ask. But schools are always going to be busy and things are always going to be happening and these students are facing these issues right now. Terms are wrapping up right now. The, these different types of grading mechanisms that could go into their final grade could be happening right now. And that's honestly why I keep refreshing myself and taking really great encouragement from Dr. McKenzie because it is hard work, but we have to do it. Like we have to see our research. We have to see the associations and communicate it wisely to teachers and just keep trying. Especially now that colleges are mostly going test optional, mm -hmm. which was a move towards equity, GPAs become the primary indicator of a student's academic ability. And if 
the grades that students are being assigned are not tightly reflective of their academic ability, if it's including other things like behavior or homework completion or compliance or participation, that's sending the wrong indicator to colleges and universities about the ability of the student to succeed. And we saw in our research they're much less likely to go to college if they've gotten an F. So these decisions that teachers are making in the classroom every day about how to measure and reflect students' learning. Who are 14 or 15 years old. Mm -hmm. Have a tremendous impact on the rest of their life. And we think, oh, it's one grade in one class, their freshman year. It has a tremendous impact. So for us, even though schools are moving to test optional colleges and universities to make things more equitable, the root cause of the problem for most kids is going back to their freshman year grades. Dr. Sarah McKenzie is the executive director of the Office for Education Policy at the University of Arkansas, and Sarah Morris is a second-year Ph.D. student at the U of A Department of Education Reform and graduate assistant for the Office of Education Policy. Arkansas ninth-grade teachers of English language arts, math, and sciences who are interested in participating in the study about grading practices can send an email to oep.uark.com. OEP.UARC.EDU. We have that link at OzarksAtLarge.com. Arkansas PBS, in partnership with the Arkansas Cinema Society, will present a public screening and discussion on Dirt, an Arkansas PBS documentary about saving our soil. The event takes place May 11th at 6 p.m. at the Fayetteville Public Library. The discussion will feature filmmakers and producers of Dirt. More information at arpbs.org slash dirt. This is Ozarks at Large. Finding entrepreneurship guidance in Northwest Arkansas can mean assistance from the University of Arkansas, independent nonprofits, or any number of other groups developed around the idea of startup. But as Randy Wilburn mentions on the latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, entrepreneurship can also mean buying an existing business. This week, Randy talks with 23-year-old Justin Macedo, who entered the business world just after graduating from the University of Arkansas by purchasing Uncle Sam's Safari Outfitters, a legacy retail operation in Fayetteville. A lot of my classes had, like, guest speakers, and they were talking about, like, man, I had no idea what I was doing, but I'm here now. And, like, most of the people, that was the story. It's like the very beginning, you really don't know what you're doing, but yeah. you come in with, and you know that you're going to work hard, and you've got the confidence, like, it's something's going to happen. Yeah. So that all the guest speakers were like really influential and helped. But I think especially what stood out was I had three different classes. I had one with Omar, which was the new ventures development, I believe was the name of it. Then I had a leadership class with Flint Harris and then new venture and entrepreneurship management with Mark Zweig. And those three classes were kind of the ones that like the leadership class gave me the confidence um, that I needed for like leading an organization and knowing the strategies on how to lead an organization and especially in a small business context. Um, and then from the like financial and business planning side with Swag, and he was like a massive <laughs> proponent of buying businesses. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think that whenever he just kept on saying like, you know, people can buy businesses. Right. That's the best way to do it, in my opinion. Like he just kept on talking about that. And that was kind of the seed that was really planted 
around that time. And I took that my spring semester of my senior year. Wow. Okay. So, so it wasn't long after that, that you were able to fulfill your objectives. Yeah. So tell me, I'm curious to know, what was the general sentiment with a lot of your classmates, you know, weighing the pros and cons of like doing a startup, right? Because I remember I've actually come and spoken to a couple of yeah. Mark's Y classes. I've been to Omar's class and, and spoke. And I could remember people coming to me, sharing their ideas and what they were hoping to start up. What would you say would be some of the issues or, or you know, conversations that you heard from your classmates about the pros and cons of, of one versus the other? Startup versus existing. Yeah, I think the idea, like the fun part about the startup is you like to think that there's almost less risk because you can go into a really small startup with almost no cash. And like a lot of these existing businesses, you have to pay for <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. there's a some of it. There's a big upfront cost that you've got, which isn't always the case. I mean, sometimes it's just like people just want out and they want you to take over. Yeah, I mean, that's almost kind of what happened at Uncle Sam's. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's the, like the sex appeal of having a startup. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, people like. Everybody thinks of Twitter and Facebook yeah, and, yeah. you know, I mean, it's the allure of creating something from scratch. Yeah. And I get that. Yeah. Uh, I totally get that. But there's, there isn't anything wrong with, you know, buying a, an existing bricks and mortar business mm -hmm. and making it better. I know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I use, there are a lot of businesses that that I used here as well as when I was living in Boston and I, I was like, man, these are all antiquated. They mm -hmm. need to be better. I, I mean, dry cleaners, you know, shoe repair shops. I mean, yeah. just little stuff like that. You know, I even think like here, it's like somebody could make a lot of money having like a really cool dry cleaner slash shoe repair shop yeah. where you can get a lot of that stuff done. People are keeping their clothes longer. They're willing to mend things as opposed to just buy something brand new. And quite frankly, it's better for the environment yeah. if you can take care of your clothing and your shoes and keep them for as long as possible. And so that's just actually been an idea in my mind, right? Yeah. I've been like, you know, I, I should do this because like, I can't go anywhere and find a good tailor in mm -hmm. Northwest Arkansas. That's been my one challenge. Yeah. And, you know, when I was living in Boston, there's, you know, there are great tailors all over the place. They're yeah, all great, over downtown. They're great shoe cobblers. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I think there are, that's like a blue ocean, mm -hmm. if you ask me, in terms of opportunities. Yeah. So, so what was it about Uncle Sam's that, you know, for you, at what point did you realize, you know what, I could actually buy this place? Yeah. So it was kind of funny. We had, so in Mark Zweig's class, we did a consulting project mm -hmm. that was kind of our like end of the year final project. And me and a partner um, decided to do one over Uncle Sam's because I'd worked there and kind of knew ins and outs of it and like was it was like my chance to kind of talk with the owner about like hey these are the things that I really think that we should change and so I was like pretty excited about that um, just because there was a lot of things that I wanted to see us do differently and yeah so we started that project and just kind of went through it and I was talking with the owner a lot and we had to do like several interviews to write for the for the project and I asked him, I was like, Hey, so like, what's the long-term plan with uncle Sam's? And he's like, well, you know, I just want to steward it well for now, but like, I don't see myself in it forever. And I was like, that kind of planted the seed of like, Oh, he doesn't see himself in it forever. Okay. Like yeah. he might be willing to sell it at some point. And you know, we had had a sale during my time working there of uncle Sam's where it transferred ownership. So I knew that it was like, like the idea of selling the business was not a like foreign thought, even in the uncle Sam's context. Oh, so that owner had acquired it 
in the time that you were there in those five yes. years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. He had, he had purchased it from his father. So, oh, okay. All right. So it was a family based business. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah. And it was, uh, I think the seed was kind of planted there. And then, you know, I was, I was fishing with my dad on the white river during the white bass run. And we were like, just kind of shooting the breeze and fishing. And I was like, yeah, you know, the owner said that he was like, kind of like willing to, to sell it and yada, yada, yada. And we were like talking, he's like, you know, if he ever like actually wants to sell it, like you should buy it. And I was like, Oh, uh kind of funny. (laughs) And like, I didn't really think much of it. And then we went to Zweig's class and a couple weeks later, I gave the presentation about the the business and Zweig asked me the question. He's like, so like kind of like baseline, like if you're making like X amount of money and you could purchase it now, like, would you say yes? And I was like, Oh, I mean, maybe I think so. Like, (laughs) Like, I'll think about it. Right. And he's like, he's like, no, like, would you, would you buy it if he was willing to sell? And I yeah. was like, yeah, yeah, I think I would. And he's like, all right, you should go ask him. Like, you should go, <laughs> you should go ask him if he's, if he wants to sell. Today. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when Mark tells you something like that, he's, he means to do it right now. Yeah. Not like three weeks from now yeah. or six months. So, okay, cool. Yeah. So did you go ask him right away? So, you know, right at, right after that. So that presentation was my last in-person class of college. So I took some classes this, uh, this fall online, but I went afterwards and like hung out with a couple of my buddies that I'd had throughout college. Cause like all of our last yeah. in-person days. And then the next day I went and asked. Okay, that's cool. That's <laughs> yeah, cool. The yeah. next day I asked him, I was like, Hey, so like, like, are you, you really going to sell it? Like you thinking about it? And he's like, yeah, a deal just fell through. There was a guy that was, that was interested. That Did, Were you even aware of that? No, oh, I was not. Wow. So he's okay. like, yeah, a deal just fell through. You want it? And I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So interesting. yeah, that was, I guess the last week of April, the first week of May. Okay. Some, sometime around there. So, and it took you about, so from April or May of 2022 until when you closed the deal, I think it was around the 23rd of, of November. Correct. Took about, that's about five months almost. Yeah. So five, a lot of months. that, yeah, a lot of that was, I had already committed to go back to Colorado to guide. So I had like signed a contract and was like, I'm going. So I went to Colorado to guide and through all of that was like writing the business plan and getting financial projections done and like talking with banks and getting all of like kind of the the deal set up, talking with my lawyer and getting all of that figured out. Justin Macedo is owner of Uncle Sam's Safari Outfitters in Fayetteville, and he's this week's guest on I Am Northwest Arkansas with Randy Wilburn. You can hear the entire episode at IamNorthwestArkansas.com or by subscribing to the podcast wherever you already get podcasts. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the second episode of our podcast, Beloved Community, produced in conjunction with the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Commission. It's ready, and we have an excerpt. When you can see a story of a person that you may not know, um, but may be similar to you, then you can really start to lean in versus just my own opinion. Mm. Um, because my column isn't a, it's an op-ed, it's an opinion column, but I really try to bring in um, data, I bring in narratives, and I try to... Um, bringing facts about what the issue is. And then I challenge people to um, think outside the box or mm-hmm. should I, I should maybe say expand their box. Yeah. So instead yeah. of thinking, I say expand your box because our world is changing and whether we want it to or not, 
um, we have to somehow figure out how to adapt to the change. Writer and mentor Ricky Booker discusses the whys of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That and more on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. You can keep up with our show easily, by the way, with the Ozarks at Large newsletter. It's delivered for free each weekday into your email inbox. You just have to sign up at KUAF.com. Each issue of the email newsletter lists stories and interviews from recent shows and then provides direct links so you can listen to those interviews and stories when you want. It's free. Just sign up at KUAF.com. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. William Harold Flowers was a major leader of the civil rights struggle in Arkansas in the 1940s. Born in Stamps in 1911, Flowers witnessed the 1927 lynching of John Carter in Little Rock and vowed to fight for civil rights. He established a law practice in Pine Bluff in 1938 and was soon involved in voter registration work, raising the percentage of black voters from 1.5 to 17.3% in seven years. In 1947, he succeeded in seating black jurors for the first time since Reconstruction, helping to acquit two black murder suspects. As counsel to Silas Hunt, he helped desegregate the University of Arkansas School of Law in 1948, and a year later sued for equal facilities in DeWitt segregated schools. In 1977, he was the first black special judge in Jefferson County, and three years later was named Associate Justice in the State Court of Appeals. He was ordained a Methodist minister in 1971 and was active in the church until his death in 1990. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. KUAF continues to work with CARS, that's Charitable Adult Rides and Services, when it comes to car donations to the radio station. CARS oversees the pickup, the auction, and the distribution of the donation to KUAF, then sends a tax receipt to you. All you have to do is call 855-500-7433. That's 855-500-RIDE. Or go to car easy.org to start the process. So moms, right? Relationships with our mothers can be, well, different. For some, our moms are our very best friend. For others, well, simply put, it can just be different. As Mother's Day approaches on Sunday, we want to share your mom story with our listeners. Be it as a mom, about your mom, Maybe about someone else's mom. You can call the KUAF Connect line at 479-575-6577. That's 575-6577. And give us your mom story. Again, 575-6577. And remember, at KUAF, your voice matters. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Jasper, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth and Randy Wilburn. The show produced inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Thanks to everybody who took care of this show while I was out with a 2023 case of COVID-19. Feeling better now. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7.